This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Dan from Shares and I'm joined this week by Laith from AJ Bell. Hi there. So this episode will look at events on both sides of the pond, given that the US presidential election is moving markets and England has entered lockdown once again. That's right. I'm going to be taking a look at the financial support measures uh, for individuals and businesses that have been affected by that lockdown. Dan, you're going to be talking to the Buffetology manager, Keith Ashworth-Lord. Quite an interesting time to be talking to him about his fund, but also uh, why his plans to launch an investment trust didn't work out. Um, But first, we've got to deal with the big issue of the day, uh, trying to make sense of, of the US election. So, we're recording now at um, two o'clock or so in the afternoon on Wednesday, so things still looking uh, pretty uncertain. Dan, can you can you try and make some sense of it for us, please? Yeah, I mean, I, I watched a bit of the, the telly last night and came to the conclusion that no one quite knew what was going on. And because <laughs> yeah. woke up this morning and it was, um, it seemed to be sort of shifting more towards um, Trump, and so the markets were initially a bit caught by surprise. I think everyone here was perhaps expecting a sort of clean sweep for, for Biden. So I mean, say at the moment, we still don't know the answer, but um, it, it's the, the trigger point for markets really moving today was when Trump came out and just basically said, um, you know, I've, I've secured it. Um, you know, we should, we, you know, this could, we should take, take this to the courts, really talking about um, he's concerned about fraud in postal voting but i think that the market was was definitely not sort of expecting such decisive words um when there was clearly so many votes still to count so the, what happened was treasury yields and the us um started to fall the dollar started to rise initially european markets and the and in the uk the FTSE 100 was was marked down um but but as the day is progressing you've seen um, the S&P, we're recording this literally just before the US markets open. It looks like the S&P 500 is going to open up about 1.7%, but the Nasdaq is going to open up about 3.7%, which is you know, it's a huge rally and people just weren't expecting this. And I think what you're seeing is that there's a, a shift back to um, kind of what worked under Trump. So when people thought, okay, it looks like Biden was going to um, be strong, uh, contended to win this election, there was a lot of shift from quality to value stocks, and and the the dollar had started to fall. So, uh, I think what you're seeing is an unwinding of these events now, and people sort of switching back to sort of the, perhaps the quality um, tech sort of trade that's worked very well. In if you look at the European markets, it's healthcare stocks that have been leading the rally there because it, it looks like the Democrats probably won't gain majority in the Senate. So therefore, the, the path has been blocked to healthcare reform uh, impacting drug prices. So, uh, you know, other things that Biden was um, very sort of pro-renewable energy, and you've seen for, for several months now quite a lot of um, stocks related to, to renewable energy, and particularly companies that make um, equipment for that industry have been doing very well. And so obviously that all eyes will be on seeing if that, that sort of trade and wines. But of course, this is this is still speculation. We just don't know what's going on and where things will be headed, because it could be 
in a matter of hours or, or potentially days or, or actually could be weeks that uh, we find out um, maybe Biden's got in after all. So it, it, it's it's a tricky situation. People are still trying to guess what might happen. Um, and there's a lot to call at the moment. I don't know. So, Leith, did you sort of did you stay up late last night trying to get your head around what was potentially going to happen? No late night, um, uh, early morning. Um, actually been watching CNN because I thought it'd be quite interesting to dial into what kind of people over there were saying about it. Um, but, you know, as you say, it's kind of just a cloud of uncertainty um, and it's just a waiting game now. And I guess the, the concern is what happens during that that waiting game um, you know, are there any kind of, you know, uh, uh, under the under the table blows that Donald Trump is going to try to land and what's that going to do to markets? So I guess for markets, kind of a, an open election where we're still talking about this in a week, week's time is um, is probably a pretty unsettling thing. Um, I think whichever, you know, whichever, you know, whichever kind of leader you, you might think the markets are going to favour, no leader is is definitely a worse option to, to, to either of them. So I think we could be into for, you know, a bit of an interesting time on markets if it, if it you know, if, if, an, if a, a winner doesn't appear in the next kind of 24 hours or so. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you look back to 2000 where we had um, sort of, it's a sort of disputed election for quite a, for quite a long time with the Bush Gore saga. It took um, quite a long time before they resolved who was the winner. And during this waiting game, the S and P five hundred actually fell by about eight percent until it was all resolved. So it sort of shows if, if we're going to get a repeat of this situation, it does drag on quite well, particularly if that goes into the courts. Um, you know, it could be a really choppy time for for investors, but. I think I think really it, it might pay for for people to just get their heads around what exactly that, that you know, each was standing for. You know, essentially Biden was looking to or is looking to um, sort of raise taxes for uh, particularly for, for for companies. So therefore, it, it, their earnings will be um, potentially you know reduced as a result of this, uh, which isn't good for for share prices. But on the other hand, uh, you know, he wants to do. Um, a potentially very large stimulus program for you know the government spending, particularly on infrastructure and stuff like that. So um, the, the two outweigh each other potentially. So actually, you've got a scenario where the market was expecting Biden to to easily get in, and therefore the Democrats would um, spend heavily on the infrastructure stuff. Now, we, if he has going, to, you know, if Biden does win and the Republicans are you know, still sort of controlling Senate, then there's likely to be a lot lower stimulus. Therefore, um, that, that could be a drag on the markets uh, and also potentially a delay to it actually happening as well. But obviously, if, if, if Trump gets back in, you know, the markets might like that. Um, yeah. He's certainly being pro-business. He, it would mean lower taxes for longer. Um, but it would, you know, you, you're potentially looking at another four years of sort of disruption to sort of global trade really here. So it's... Um, it's it's going to be a yeah it's a tricky one and we'll, we'll you yeah. know we'll endeavour to come back onto the podcast and um, discuss once we've got all the information we have and we know who's who's going to be um, you know the new president the next four years then we'll we'll come back and address things in more detail. So the strength of the US stock market in recent years has really has made sort of more UK investors active in this space, but. Actually, they're not as involved as you might think. So, Leith, I know you've looked at this in a bit more detail. What, what, mm. What's exactly going on here? 
Yeah, well, I mean, we've seen in 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 recent months and indeed years, um, investors, fund investors pulling money out of the UK, going generally into more global funds, including within the US. Um, so we did a bit of an analysis to see kind of what a typical fund portfolio looks like in terms of its its geographical allocation, and then thought it would be interesting just to see how that compares to how stock market value is kind of distributed around the globe. So to do that, we looked at the typical fund portfolio. We also looked at the MSCI World Index. So that is a very widely used index, which basically tells us how global how the global stock market looks in terms of its geographical allocation. So it's a little bit like a, a map of, of stock market value. So if you look at um, the, um, the US, the US is around 60% of that index. So it's a huge amount of the global stock market. And that kind of makes sense. If you think about it, we've got huge companies in the in the US, you know, in September, you know, Apple reached a value which was more than the value of all of the FTSE 100, right? So, you know, that tells you that's just one company in the US stock market. And there's obviously quite a few, uh, you know, a, a lot of big ones like Apple, although it is the biggest. So that gives us an idea why the US makes up so much of the global stock market. So that's 60% of the global stock market. Fund investors over here only hold 30% in the US within their portfolios on average. Obviously, everyone's going to be different, but on average, 30%. Now, if you look at the UK, it's the other way around. So the UK actually makes up a fairly small amount of the global stock market cap, uh, less than 4%. But fund investors over here, we have around 40% uh, of, of our portfolios invested. So again, we're hugely overweight, the UK. And that's obviously made a really big difference over... The last 10 years because the US stock market has performed so well, particularly compared to the, the, the FTSE all shares. So you're talking about a market that's gone up 300% compared to a market you know, that's only gone up 60% or so. So you know, overall, looking, looking backwards, US, UK investors have lost out by not having a bigger weighting to the US. You know, looking forward, things are obviously, you know, a, a, a bit more difficult to call because, you know, the crystal ball is never as clear as the as the rearview mirror. So I think that's particularly the case because the US market is looking so expensive right now. If you look at the, the Schiller PE, so this is a, a, a valuation metric that's um, compiled by Robert Schiller, Nobel uh, Prize winning uh, economist from Yale, uh, Yale University. Um that index is now at a, a two-year high. Um, it's only ever been higher during 2017, 2018. That was the Trump bump following all the Trump tax cuts. The tech boom in the late 90s and September 1929, which was just before the Wall Street crash. So that, that signal is, if you like, flashing red. So having said that, it has been elevated for for some time. And as we know, there's been this huge rally in in, in the US, which has continued irrespective of, of valuation, really. So I think whether you buy into kind of US or UK stock markets at this point in time, looking at the kind of next next 10 years, next five or 10 years, really, depends whether you, whether you think, you know, the growth stocks, those big tech stocks are going to continue to dominate or whether, you know, the value stocks, you know, some, some of the economically sensitive industries that we have a lot of in the UK, um, are due a comeback, so the likes of financials and oil. So depending how you sit on that particular question, probably determines whether you think the US or the UK is a is a is a better bet play um, going forward. So so yeah, answers on the postcard for that one, please. 
<laughs> so shifting the focus from the US to the UK, uh, lockdowns upon us again. It's going to be a bit of a difficult time for many people financially. So I know there's been some changes to support schemes for people affected. So Lathe, it would probably be worth just spelling out what uh, is on offer now. Um, and I'm sure there'll be lots of people looking for some reassurance that um, there, there is help available. Yeah, absolutely. There, there is help, and obviously these things have been changing quite, quite regularly. So I think the help that we've got for, as a result of the latest lockdown, broadly be be, be chopped into kind of four bits. There's help for employees. So the uh, furlough scheme, um, or the coronavirus job retention scheme, as it's kind of snappily titled, that's been extended till the end of November. So that 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 uh, gives workers eighty percent of current salary up to. Um, a maximum of two and a half thousand employers have to make national insurance and employer pension contributions, but no more than that. The the less generous job support scheme, which was meant to be coming in, has now been deferred until the lockdown is over, which we're now expecting at the beginning of December. So employees, all good uh, until um, the end of November in terms of the furlough scheme. Also support for the self-employed. So this is for people who've had to stop trading because of coronavirus or they, they've had their income reduced as a result of coronavirus. So um, they now have a scheme which is for the next three months, 40% uh, of average trading profits. But for November in particular, it's 80%. So if you look at overall over the next three months, it basically works out at 55% of trading profits over that period, uh, capped at just over uh, 5,000. That scheme is expected to roll over for another three months, but we don't know um, at the moment what level it will be set at. So uh, employees self-employed, borrowers also getting some help. Um, we're seeing extension on mortgage holidays up to six months um, in total, including any holidays that you've already had. And that applies to uh, deferrals on consumer credit as well. And then finally, the fourth area, businesses. So businesses are, are, are getting grants if they're forced to close up to £3,000 a month, depending on the size of the government. That's in England. Devolved governments are then getting some funding to arrange their own schemes. Um, and we're also seeing the applications for the three business loan schemes um, extended um, from the end of November to the end of January. So all in all, we've seen you know, more support like we saw during the first lockdown to, to, to offset those higher restrictions in terms of that kind of cliff edge that we were waiting for at the end of October when all the schemes kind of started you know, disappearing. That's now been uh, pushed really into the beginning of next year. So we'll have to see what happens then. Okay, so I, mean, I guess it's uh, people are just going to be hoping that this lockdown it only lasts until December, uh, start of December as planned. I mean, I guess it's Boris Johnson seems to be giving messages that it's you know it will it will stop when he originally said it would. But you know, you just you know that this is a the government likes to to sort of switch his mind quite often. Um, so I think any any help that people can get financially is always always good in these tricky situations. So last month we talked about how there were three fund groups trying to launch smaller company investment trusts to take advantage of depressed valuations on the UK stock market. Unfortunately, Telworth's product didn't attract enough money was pulled. Uh, the same things now happened to the Buffetology Smaller Cap uh, Company Trust. So I caught up with fund manager Keith Ashworth-Lord to find out what happened behind the scenes uh, and why this investment trust didn't 
get its flotation away. Uh, I also talked to him about his main fund, which is called UK Buffetology. So as the name might suggest, it takes quite a lot of influence from the investment style of legendary investor Warren Buffett. So uh, I hope you enjoy the interview. Um, Keith has always got some really fascinating things to say. So Keith, I presume you're a bit disappointed that the Buffetology Investment Trust IPO failed to get away. Quite interesting to see if you can share any sort of feedback from investors. Um, what Did they sort of say that they, they liked what you were proposing to do, but a bit worried about Brexit trade deals and perhaps the new lockdown? Or is it something else? You're absolutely right. I, I would say I was gutted that we didn't get it away. Uh, we'd had a fantastic response to what we were trying to do uh, initially. And this is something that's been on the on the runway for the last six months. Uh, we had we had actually pulled it at one point when the uh, first wave of COVID struck. Uh, but the point is that a lot of people have been talking to us about exactly this product and saying how that ideal a closed-ended fund would be for us to apply our skills at the smaller end of the market. So uh, when we started off on the 30th of September with the marketing period, um, the formal marketing period, that is, we were really getting an extremely good response um, from the clients we were speaking to. Uh, we were getting you know, the, all, the, all the positive feedback that it was the right thing to do, the right time, and, and, and everything like that. And pledges came in pretty fast and swift at the start uh, for the first two weeks. And then you could almost set your watch by what happened um, on October the 13th, which was the day after uh, the government announced this tiered lockdown, suddenly those pledges stopped coming in. And, and worse still, you could almost feel a, a sort of a, a lukewarm feeling gathering about the whole thing. But it then got worse the week after. In the final week, um, that was you'll recall that was when the government started arguing with its own red wall MPs and the elected mayors. Uh, about tier three lockdowns, uh, we saw worse. We not we didn't just see things drying up and pledges failing to convert onto the book. We actually saw orders being pulled and scaled back. Uh, and and as I say, you can set your watch by it. So I'm afraid to say that we were the victims of what happened with the government with lockdown mark two. And what really worries me is that we are just a microcosm of what's going on in the real economy, because that it was all about confidence and people uh, reaching for the sort of switch that said risk off. Yeah. Do, do you think you'll have another go when things are sort of calming down a bit? Or um, do you think that you just need to look elsewhere for sort of growth within your own business? Or? I think, you know, we've got um, we, we've done an awful lot of work ahead of this uh, intended flotation. And that's not just work on getting the prospectus and getting the legals and all that. It's also an awful lot of research. I mean, my my, my sort of uh, partners in, in this in this project were Eric Burns and David Beggs of our team. And they've done an awful lot of work on research and identifying uh, smaller investments that would be suitable for it. So, I mean, basically, to use to use a Boris expression, uh, we've got something that's oven ready and uh, we will look at it again. You know, we'll we'll take soundings. We'll see what what happens after the transition period ends and whatever deal we're working on then uh, after the the US election um, has, has quietened down a bit. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. And if we think that the time is right again, we'll just open the drawer again. OK, so, so obviously you've got 
another fund already, the UK Propertology Fund. Uh, is it, that's got stocks like Games Workshop and Jet2. That surely they must be seeing disruption to trading at the moment. Particularly, you know, if we can't visit shops, we can't get on the plane. So you you are sort of um, having to contend with problems even now with your with the other fund, aren't you? Well, what I would say about that is Jet2 when they did their fundraise. Their worst case scenario was that they didn't do any flying until next April. That's how much money they raised to see them through till then. And they did actually have two months when the lockdown was lifted where they did manage to get some flights in and get some uh, get some people off on holiday. So I think we've got a very long, um, you know, long time span with that business out into probably the second quarter of next year before things get squeaky. Uh, so I, I'm quite happy holding on there with that business, especially given the attrition that there's been among their competitors. Uh, in the case of Games Workshop, I, I beg to differ, actually. Uh, Games Workshop was one of the strongest performers in the last lockdown as gamers uh, stayed at home. And, and, of course, they ordered on the Internet. Uh, you know, the, you don't have to sort of order in a store. Um, and Games Workshop had a very, very strong, um, you know, lockdown mark one period of trading. Yeah, so I mean, it's quite interesting that you've got Jet2 in your portfolio because I, I obviously uh, as a as a fund you're um influenced by the investment strategy of warren buffett but he's sold out of the airline sector so i it's quite curious you know if, if buffett says he likes or dislikes a sector would you do the same thing and follow suit uh, the answer to that is definitely not i mean i'm not being led by um what warren's circle of competence is and, and we will have different circles of competence He's primarily an insurance man, as you know. Uh, I find pricing insurance risk extremely difficult. Uh, but on the on the subject of the airlines, I'm still not convinced in my own mind that those were investments that were made uh, by Warren Buffett. I think it could have been Todd Combs and Ted Wechsler, who were his two investment managers, who bought that basket of, uh, of airlines. Uh, because there's a famous expression of, of Warren's from many years ago that if you feel like buying a an airline stock, you should join AA, which is not Alcoholics Anonymous, but Airlines Anonymous. <laughs> uh, so, so I, I always found I always found it a little bit uh, strange that 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 they bought these airline stocks, and of course they were scheduled airlines, scheduled US airlines. That's the difference with Jet Two. Jet Two, remember, is um, it, it, it's it's a charter. Well, it, it's scheduled, but it's it's linked with holidays and uh, packages. Uh, with the leisure side. So it's not strictly a scheduled airline in the sense that, you know, uh, Southwest Airlines in the States is. Yeah, sure. So what so they're right in saying you, you pay a license to use the Buffetology name. So quite curious to know, where, where does this sort of name originate from? How, how did you sort of get permission to use that name in the first place? The licensors are Mary Buffett and David Clark. Uh, and Mary Buffett was Warren's daughter-in-law for, I think it was 12 years, married to his son Peter. Um, and Dave was a friend of the family. They, in the mid-90s, produced the first of a series of books, and it was just called Buffettology. And what it did was it purported to explain from the inside um, how Warren Buffett goes about his investments, what he looks for in investments, uh, you know what sort of what sort of qualities in the, in those businesses, uh, and what sort of financials as well, and they they effectively codified this. And I have to say, when I read that book for the first time, in I think it was nineteen ninety seven, 
it was that Damascian moment when the wool gets lifted from your eyes and suddenly you think, yeah, you know, this is the way to do investment. Why on earth have I been messing around the way I have <laughs> until now? Um, so anyway, to, to cut to the quick, I got to know Mary and David and, and all the other Buffettologists, you know, Andy Kilpatrick, Roger Lowenstein and Larry Cunningham, Janet Lowe. I got to know them by going out um, to Omaha to the Berkshire Hathaway AGMs, as, which started, we started doing that in the in the late 90s, mid to late 90s. Um, as a result of that, we got very friendly um, with that whole group of people. And subsequently, it was in 2009, I was sat at home in Florida at Christmas, um, and the phone went, and it was David Clark from Omaha. And he actually brought the idea to me and said, have you ever fancied running a fund, you know, a, a, a quoted fund? He said, because we've watched you, you know, we know you talk the talk and you walk the walk, and we would like to have somebody launch a fund in Europe because they have a partnership, a Buffettology partnership in North America. Now, the point is they've trademarked the name Buffettology the world over. And Dave said to me, he said, and if, if you are um, agreeable to this, he says, we will license you the name on an exclusive basis to use the fund management in, in the United Kingdom. And that to me was like, you know, the name over the door. So I took about one nanosecond to say yes. Yeah. Uh, and we signed the deal. And, uh, you know, and off we went. So that's how the name Buffetology came about. Okay. So, I mean, I was having a look at uh, some of the sort of commentary you put out on your fund recently. And it, I sort of sense a bit of frustration on your part um, that you're, you're a forced seller of Games Workshop um, because it's it, it's enjoyed big success. So that's made the stock uh, share price go up. And it's actually become a bit too, too big a position in your portfolio because Sort of that there's fund rules which sort of say that 10% maximum holding is allowed in, in a single stock. But I'm just wondering, you know, with Warren Buffett approach, would be to take big bets on stocks. I mean, Apple counts for about 44% of Berkshire Hathaway's equity investment. So Berkshire Hathaway being his investment vehicle. So I'm just wondering, if, if do you wish that you could have a position size significantly higher than 10%? particularly if you've got utmost conviction in the, in a business like something like Games Workshop. Absolutely right, Dan. I mean, I, I've absolutely hated having to sell down that holding in, in Games Workshop because it kept going above 10% of the fund. But that's the use its rule. You know, it's the 5-10-40 rule. Um, my preference would have been to just let it run. And if I'd done that and not been selling down for the last couple of months every now and then, uh, we'd have probably had about 12% of the fund in, in Games Workshop currently. And I would have been happy with that because the business is doing really, really well. Uh, but I was I was a, a forced seller, as you rightly say. I mean, to me, it's it's you know, it's Peter Lynch's expression. It's it's basically pulling up the roses to water the weeds doing that. And, yeah, I, I, I feel really quite sore about it. I don't think it's serving um, our investors well, that particular rule. Yeah. So what, what, I mean, apart from Games Workshop, what companies are really exciting you at the moment? Well, of the businesses that we've got in the portfolio, um, some, some of my smaller ones, uh, I, I really think have got a lot of mileage. Uh, businesses like uh, Focusrite, uh, which is, is, is related to the musical industry. Another business that sailed through the COVID panic period. Um, so that, that would be one, I think. Um, I'm also quite interested in MJ Gleason, the affordable homes house builder, um, because nobody else is doing that. They don't have the skills. Uh, so you, you're not going to see Redrow or Persimmon or anything like that 
uh, encroaching on their patch. And they're, they're, they're selling to sort of uh, D&D, C2DE um, socio-demographic. And uh, the, the average price of the homes they're selling are around about 125000 uh, you know, so it's low income people that they're, they're aiming at. The people that, that governments keep saying they want to get on the housing ladder. And these guys are there, Gleasons are there actually making it come real for them. And I think they've got a, a, a quite unique um, niche of the market. There's nobody else playing at that end. So that's one business, you know, another business that I think has got an awful lot going in its favor at the moment. And probably if I had if, if I had to pick another one, um, it would actually be one of my American holdings, um, a company called Rollins. Rollins is the number two pest control business in North America, uh, number two after Service Master. And um, the beauty about pest control in the States is it's not a discretionary spend. You know, I know from my home in Florida that if, if I don't get it uh, properly sorted out once a month, then when I get back, I'm going to be overrun with roaches and palmettos and spiders and maybe even a snake or two. Uh, so it's not something that, you know, it's not wasp in, wasp's nest or a rat in the kitchen. And uh, these these guys, they're, they're, they're both commercial and residential. And for the last 18 years, they, they've grown consistently at, uh, at around about 10% per annum. Um, they've got a fantastic return on equity of 30%. They convert all their earnings into cash because they've really got no need for working capital. Um, families still control it. Dividends are going up. Uh, you know, as I say, 18 years compound growth. They went through 2008, 2009, like there was no crisis. Uh, and it's a business, because it's a fragmented market, it's a business that they can add to through bolt-on acquisitions. And it's another one that I just think there's an awful lot of mileage there. Um, so, so those would be the three that I'd say: Focus Right, uh, MJ Gleason, and Rollins, all for very different reasons. Yeah, well, something like Rollins. It, it, would you not be tempted? You know, if you've identified the sort of the theme of pest control, would you not be tempted to just buy shares in Rent-A-Kill because it's a UK listed business rather than having to look overseas? Or um, you're, you're quite comfortable looking in overseas markets then? Absolutely. I mean, this is a really interesting thing because uh, the, the identification of Rollins came about because um, our analyst was looking at Rent-A-Kill um, and I said, you ought to look abroad. I said, the problem with Rent-A-Kill is uh, the UK pest control market is not what it is in North America. I know I know, Rent-A-Kill are, you know, are exposed to North America. I said, well, I don't like the hygiene side, you know, the washroom side. I said, so go and have a look in, in North America. I said, I know Warren Buffett once owned a business called Service Master operating under the Terminix um, brand. So he looked at overseas, and as I say, that's how we picked up Rollins. It's the number two, and our predilection is to go for market leadership. But uh, this this just looked so good when we did the analysis on it, and, and you know, we followed it up with calls with the managers, and, and it, it just fitted the bill perfectly, much, much better I'm much happier in that business than I would be in Rentacle. Yeah. So, so how much of your fund do you have in overseas listed holdings then? Oh, we only own two. We we own Rollins, as I said, and the other one. <laughs> guess which one it is? Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and, and together they account for something like five and a half percent of the fund. So yeah. it's not huge. I mean, do you think? Do you think that over time that might get bigger in terms of it? 
waiting for for overseas stuff or is it just like an, a, a sort of the, you've got a flexibility to look at that market but that's that's always going to be second nature to the uk for for opportunities yeah it is because i mean one of the things is we're listed in the ia uk all companies sector and that says 80 percent of our uh, nav has got to be invested in uk equities so in effect uh, the more overseas equities we have it constrains the cash because you have to put cash and overseas together uh, you know, and that's the 20% you're allowed. Um, so, you know, it is a UK fund where where I think we could really think, well, we, we're not thinking, I mean, we're planning. We're going to plan a global buffetology fund. There's no question about that. This methodology we use crosses borders. I think the fact that, you know, we've, we've found Rollins, for example, and invested in that, and it's now in one of the top 10 in, in, in the fund, you know, it proves that we can do it overseas. Uh, so I think I think a, a global fund would be the better vehicle uh, for doing that sort of thing. Yeah, when when could we expect that to uh, that such a product to be launched? Then is that a near term thing? Well, the the irony is that it was planned to be launched um, this year, but we we um, just shelved it in favour of going for the investment trust because that seemed a. Uh, a product that was more suited to the markets we were in. I mean, we got that one right, didn't we? Yeah. Uh, uh, so, you know, it's 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 something certainly for 2021 um, to look very closely at the idea of doing a global fund. Well, brilliant. Keith, thank you ever so much for joining us. Uh, really good to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Dan. Okay, that's everything from us this week. Thanks for tuning in. Please do leave a review uh, of the podcast wherever you listen to it and hopefully we'll see you next time. Thanks very much. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.